0: I'll open up the session now. So I'd like to welcome everyone first for dialing into the SMA Space Speaker Session entitled Space-Based Missile Defense, Still Grounded. And especially thank our speaker, Ms. Teresa Hitchens, for taking the time to present today. So hopefully everyone that dialed in received her bio and slides. And if you haven't received these materials, you can feel free to email me, and I'll send those over to you. So now I'm going to give Teresa a quick introduction before she gets started. Ms. Therese, Ms. Teresa Hitchens is a senior research associate at CISM, where she focuses on space security, cybersecurity, and governance issues surrounding disruptive technologies. And prior to joining CISM, Ms. Hitchens was the director of the UN Institute for Disarmament Research in Geneva from 2009 to 2014. So, Ms. Hitchens, I will turn the floor over to you now. Thank you, Nicole, and um, thanks, everybody, for being willing to come along and listen. Um, in speaking with Nicole and Doc about a topic today, we decided to, to take a look at space-based um, and defenses, given that uh, last Friday was the 35th anniversary. Uh, for those of you who are old as me, it doesn't seem that long ago, but yes, 35th anniversary of the March 23rd a uh, speech by President Ronald Reagan um, announcing or bringing up the idea of uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative, speech was dubbed the Star Wars speech, um, and talking about the possibility of a peace shield, that is, missile defenses, that would um, protect the entire United States from the Soviet Union's arsenal of nuclear weapons. Um, and that launched uh, the contact of space-based missile defenses in various forms that has not disappeared until this day. Um, so what I've tried to do is to give a very brief history. There have been billions of papers written about this project, these programs, um, and hundreds and hundreds of books, so it's impossible to go into history in detail and especially into the technical history um, and I'm glad I don't have to do that because I'm not a physicist um, but uh, there have been very many um, scientific studies on various concepts as well and I've tried to hit the highlights essentially of the history and of the scientific uh, concepts to go through some of the challenges that were presented to different uh, types of space-based missile defenses that have been pursued and look at, um, at why and how uh, those challenges uh, have not been resolved or many of those challenges have, have not been resolved. So we're going to start with the history. Um, in 1984, the Strategic Defense Initiative organization was set up and it was uh, set up to pursue quite a number of different options for providing uh, missile defense, uh, again, a countrywide missile defense. Um, in the space-based arenas, there was the pursuit of space-based interceptors, kinetic interceptors, uh, space-based lasers, and, and even uh, concepts of neutral particle beams to be based in space that could um, shoot down incoming ballistic missiles. So that was the establishment of SDIO. So about 1984 or to 1986, um, SCIO narrowed its focus on something called a limited phase one deployment. So rather than looking at this um, comprehensive shield that Ronald Reagan had been enamored of, uh, SCIO decided to take a more pragmatic and short term focus to um, the possibility of feeding some kind of deployment of a shield and that meant looking at a much more limited system that was essentially designed to make it harder for the Soviet Union to uh, benefit from uh, an attack. In other words, rather than to protect everyone, it was more of a deterrent process that they were talking about. And they estimated the cost at that time of a phase one deployment of about $75 to $150 billion. Um, quite a lot of money in uh, that time frame. Um, the actual first hardware contracts for space-based interceptor concepts were issued in 1987. You can see that this is a program that was put on a very fast track to actually bend metal, even though there had not been uh, a lot of comprehensive research done prior to that. And that fact right there is something that dogged this program and these efforts for uh, many, many years. Um, indeed has dogged the entire physical defense program, which was set up to, um, again, put something together rapidly, and there have been problems with uh, doing that because there has not been adequate time to do proper research on various uh, program elements. Um, so the first hardware contracts were issued in September 1987. And that same year, uh, an American Physical Society study uh, was conducted that looked at uh, at um, at FBI and, in particular, focused on directed energy technologies, and found, quite frankly, that directed energy technologies uh, being proposed for space-based missile defense were not remotely ready—not just not ready, not even remotely ready—nowhere in the horizon. This was followed pretty rapidly in 1989 by a adjacent study of, of the Brilliant Pebbles con- uh, concept. Um, Brilliant Pebbles was a concept that was evolved, <coughs> in the year and around between 84 and 87, um, well in 89 really, um, to try to bring down the costs and complicate the problem of countermeasures of space-based missile defenses. Initial concepts of S C I the kinetic energy SCI had been a sort of a large mothership, if you will, uh, carrying uh, many different individual interceptors. And there were problems with that. One, master hardware, which meant uh, a master, uh, master orbit requirements. The thing would have to be really big, unless it would be really costly. And second of well, that it became a, sh- a sitting duck itself, um, this it one giant platformer. Um, the other, so the uh, alternative concept developed primarily by folks from Lawrence Livermore was that uh, instead you could, now with a better computing power, et cetera, you could create individual interceptors in orbit and orbit them in space. Um, and these would be sort of teardrop-shaped tungsten uh, interceptors that were dubbed brilliant pebbles. And in 1989, there was a Jason study that um, while said that in according to the laws of physics there were no showstoppers for this kind of, of technology, that the tech was not, again, ready, or anywhere close to ready. But there were, would be trouble again still with countermeasures and various other things. The Jason study was classified, but there were at the time um, unclassified reports um, and um, that was essentially the, the conclusion. In 1981, yeah. the concept again was was overhauled, um, and uh, George H. W. Bush um, approved something called the Global Protection Against Limited Strike concept. And this again sort of narrowed down the focus of missile defense, particularly space-based missile defenses, but of all the whole missile defense program, to looking at the um, protection against the possibility of either rogue strikes, remember that we're talking about the end of the Cold War here, um, rogue strikes or strikes from uh, rogue countries, so to speak. Um, and he actually approved the Brilliant Pebbles concept. The initial cost, estimated for brilliant Pebbles tends towards $20 billion, And not very long after, they had come up with the concept the price tag of winch, about $55 billion. So already you're seeing cost elevation uh, in the program, even in early stages. So let's move a little faster. In 1993, President Bill Clinton Restructured the entire effort uh, of SDIO, renaming it the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization, with a focus on ground-based interceptors and theater missile defense. In 1994, the Brilliant Pebbles uh, concept was finally terminated, and it was not replaced with any sort of space-based initiative. In 2003, George W. Bush restructured the BMDO to the Missile Defense Agency. Um, limited national defense focus, again, looking at mostly Iran and North Korea, um, keeping the focus on ground-based interceptors. But this program included a space-based test bed for applied space-based interceptor research. And at that time, there was another APS uh, study um, which looked at SDIs and decided that there was something there would need to be a minimum in a very best-case program of 1,600 SBIs uh, and deem the program impractical. In 2009, Obama uh, killed the tough bed and killed SBI research, and the Pentagon has requested no funds for space-based interceptors since 2008. In 2015, Congress, however, in the FY 2016 NDAA, once again raised the call for space-based interse- interceptors, for boost space and defense, and called for a concept definition um, for BPIs, boost space intercept, or to counter anti satellite weapons, or even hypersonic weapons. It's an interesting phrase there. In 2017, the fiscal year 2018 NDAA called for Research into space Missile Defenses. The restart of the space-based test set is consistent with the ongoing Pentagon Ballistic Missile Defense Review, which as far as I know has not yet been finished. I haven't seen um, any results of that. If, if somebody knows differently, please tell me that, because I'd be interested. It was due to be finished at the end of the year. So this was again odd phrasing, that they would like to have this happen, but only if it's consistent with the new Pentagon view. Um, and just uh, the last little um, note here on uh, slide four, is that in March 2018, um, the commander of strategic uh, Forces command, General John Hyten, was asked about this in congressional testimony and he said that he was not convinced that space-based interceptors were needed. So I'm on slide 5. I'm sorry they are not numbers, but just the challenges. um, Over all this time, for 35 years, there have essentially been four categories of challenges to space-based missile defenses. Um, and those are technical challenges, practical challenges, cost challenges, and geostrategic challenges. Okay. So the technical challenges, again, I'm just going to go through really quickly because you know, there's a lot to say about these and a lot of argument, etc. cetera. So um, with lasers, the big question was, was power, the ability to get um, power weight, kind of mat- uh, ratios and the ability to get enough power into space based on the way. The other question was beam coherence over the periods of time necessary and distances. Um, uh, for, for space-based interceptors, um, kinetic interceptors, uh, deployment has, has been deemed at different times technically possible, or at least possible according to the laws of physics, but there were there have remained many challenges that have not really gone away. Um, one is the interceptor size and speed, because the speed of the interceptor is um, you know um, depends uh, also on its size, and the orbit question. Then there's the te- detection, tracking, discrimination of the targets, and that's something that's still actually not adequate key factor that's mentioned in all of the technical studies is the short time that an interceptor has to actually kill the incoming missile in the boost phase. And it's, it's a very small window, two to three minute window. And, and lastly, that the countermeasures, um, are, countermeasures are very easy to create. So whether that would be decoys, which there's been a lot of talk about, Or, more interestingly, I think, the idea that the the person firing the missile, the incoming missile, could fire a couple of missiles to create a gap in the constellation of space-based interceptors and then use that gap to continue to launch. And that's another issue that has not gone away. So then there are practical issues, and then practical issues really are sort of technical issues too. But they're, um, but they're more engineering I think issues, <laughs> and maybe issues of feasibility versus cost, uh, rather than actual serious like we don't have the tech, we don't know how to do this issues. So <coughs> practical issues: so the key one is that you need thousands of space case- interceptors to kill every incoming missile. And that again has not changed. We need numbers to kill them to be sure that you're going to kill the incoming missile. And part of this is due to absentee ratios. Um, you can't, in order to have one satellite over your, over your target, uh, or one interceptor, or two interceptors, or five interceptors, um, there've been various configurations saying that you need one to five to kill an incoming missile. Um, you need to have many more. Um, orbiting because they orbit, so they move out of the target range uh, rapidly. It will require an increase in launch capacity, um, Air Force launch capacity, and a really critical issue, and a critical issue that, again, to this day has not been resolved in any way, shape, or form, is that there is a very short decision to fire time from the time that something is detected the time, you have to launch a space-based interceptor. Practically no time at all. And many people have said that in order to do this um, and make sure that you're actually going to hit things, it would require an automated launch and detection. And that's mm, something that requires a lot of thought for those who are accountable for this system um, and have to have to make those kinds of deployment decisions because you're talking about not having a person in the loop. Um, command and control for the constellation is another question. And, and one that's often not talked about but is there is a creation of a heightened uh, risk for debris, um, creation and collision risk, because you're going to have thousands more of these things in orbit, things that inevitably are going to be a target for your adversary. Costs. Okay. Costs cost were actually the big challenge that, that stood in the way, I think, uh, of the entire SDIO venture from the get go, and, and to missile defense uh, ventures ever since. Um, and and costs have also been quite controversial. So uh, there have been various studies um, uh, over many years, all over the place, about about potential costs. It's always hard to predict costs of new technology and obviously if you're moving rapidly to field things and you haven't done a lot of pre-testing um, that makes any cost testing that you give um, even more wobbly as we all know cost estimation is not actually one of the pentagon's skill sets in acquisition um, it is very rare that a weapon system comes in uh, on cost and on schedule and with the same actual deployment parameters that it had at the beginning um, that on, on sterilizing space basis with the countries uh, as well. So one of the critical cost uh, studies was done in, in 2004 and that was by the Congressional Budget Office and it found that a uh, constellation you know one liquid liquid fuel for a Korean missile plus twenty years of operations at that at that constellation. Will cost anywhere from twenty four billion to seventy eight billion. And to do so against one solid fuel missile would be 57 billion to 224 billion. This is a very optimistic um, scenario that they used because they were talking about having one interceptor to kill one missile, which is a a constellation that allows you for no error, Um, absolutely no error. And we also all know that it's very rare that anyone develops any kind of system system, in particular, that's 100% uh, effective and accurate. the um, Institute for Defense Analysis, in 2011, gave a, a cost of about $26 billion for a launch of a limited system, and about $60 billion for a medium capacity system, and $200 billion for a global capacity uh, for the the National Academy of Sciences in 2012 um, found that space 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 was 10 times as expensive as any other alternative to achieving space missile defenses, and estimated $300 billion in 2010 dollars for a very limited capacity. Um, and so looking at these cost estimates, uh, you might think, well, OK, we stopped following launch costs. Um, Elon Musk, you know, these commercial providers, these people are launching microsatellites, et cetera. Um, but you still have a to orbit requirement for FBI because you need a lot of things in space. And it still needs a pretty high cost. I don't think you've achieved a 50% cost cut uh, in the ability to field any such system. And then there are geopolitical, issues challenges, and again, these challenges have not changed at all. Um, in fact, they've probably become more complicated since the Reagan era. Um From the very beginning, one of the, the key concerns in looking at whether um, missile defenses at all, the space-based missile defenses in particular, were going to be geostrategically sound and useful for the United States the fact that, uh, that Russia and, and China have feared since the get-go the impact on their deterrent capability, particularly had a fear of space-based missile defenses, but, and that has not changed since the late 80s. Um, there was concern, uh, historically, um, that in response to missile defense, it's really a wide, uh, very big program. The Russia and China would increase their nuclear deployments to counter any missile defense systems. So we would be once again back to the arms racing of the early Cold War prior to the START agreement. One side would build so many, the other side would build more so to keep up second strike capability, etc. So classic arms race problem. And there were many people who were concerned that missile defenses in general um, would launch yet another round of arms racing, and that this would be a negative impact on nuclear security. Space-based interceptor weapons in particular um, were perceived and continue to be perceived by not just Russia and China as adversaries trying to sort of frame the issue, but also by U.S. allies and even by the U.S. public as weapons in space. And to this day, the concept of putting weapons in space is controversial in most places, even controversial in the U.S. public, becoming probably less controversial in the national um, military circles. Um, but it is still controversial in most places. Um, and it is factual that any space interceptor constellation would have a potential for use of anti-satellite weapons, or even potentially a strike weapon regarding other kinds of terrestrial targets. It makes people very uneasy. Um, um, In more geopolitical challenges, such um, the idea of putting things before the countries in space raises the incentives for adversaries to target US space assets, including electronic warning satellites right now that are used for launch detection of nuclear missiles. And while in the past, our electronic warning satellites were connected to our strategic turret, connected to our nuclear forces. We've now jumbled together missions for satellites, um, infrared satellites, that include missile defense tracking. And there are many people who believe that this increases the risk of nuclear conflict because it, it increases the risk that someone will think that these satellites are fair game um, because of their linkage to actual tactical uses. Um, and that this justifies, would justify adversary counter-space actions if we actually had space-based interceptors these in space. days. Um, another issue is that people often talk about a limited system. Of FDIs, a limited constellation, a limited defense. But in reality, the laws of physics do not allow you to have a, a constellation of space-based interceptors that would solely cover North Korea, or solely cover Iran. Any kind of constellation that covers North Korea is going to cover parts of China, too. Which means you're bringing China's geopolitical interests into the game whether you mean to or not. Okay. Um, and Russia and Chinese deployment of FBI in return or as a response to a U.S. deployment of FBI would greatly increase the risk to U.S. space assets as well as to U.S. nuclear forces. So once again, you're talking about is this It's kind of, be careful what you wish for. If this is something that we really want to do, and we really intend to do, do we think that our adversaries will not do the same thing? And that's that's the thought I think that um, hasn't, that's a a, a thought process that hasn't been really thought through, particularly with the to this based Um. In conclusion, there continue to be technical, practical costs and geopolitical challenges to space-based interceptors, whether they're kinetic energy or directed energy-based. And I I believe that those challenges still um, mean that the concept of space-based missile defenses fails a cost-benefit analysis, too many costs and risks and not enough benefits to be gained. The potential effects on nuclear deterrence and nuclear um, stability remain actually unchanged. And again, if anything, they, they might be exacerbated, um, given that you've got more nuclear players in the game and things are more unstable than they have been for a long time. Um, and finally, the potential effects on state of security are highly negative. So my conclusion is that space-based defenses are still a bad idea. I am not alone in my conclusions. Recently, the Center for Strategic and International Studies came to the same conclusion in a, in a paper that was up on their website. Um, and in another recent paper, the um, former Clinton administration nuclear policy guru, James Miller, uh, made a very similar statement. Um, So I thank you for your time, and uh, I hope I can answer any questions anybody might have.